Hello and welcome back to another edition of Ed Choice Chats and particularly to episode one of season four of Cool Schools. Cool Schools listeners that have been here since the beginning, basically every school year I have set out, and this is the director of national research at Ed Choice, Mike McShane, for those of you who the dulcet tones of my voice are unfamiliar, I've set out to interview interesting entrepreneurial educators from across the country and talk to them about their cool schools. I have looked at public schools, at private schools, at urban schools, at rural schools, at big schools, at small schools spread all across this great nation of ours and done my best to try and tease out some interesting lessons that these folks have learned and ask them questions that potentially they haven't been asked before in any sort of public way to try and understand how their schools work and what we can all learn from them. I'm super excited to share season four with you. I'm going to be talking to some super interesting people. And obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the pandemic. We were kind of in the pandemic during the last season of these schools. But now that schools have had a little bit of breathing room, a little bit of time to think about it. Many of them are in the process. They are gearing up for or as the sort of season goes on, they will be starting up the 2021-22 school year. And so I think they're going to have some interesting reflections, both kind of looking backwards on the pandemic, but also looking at the present and looking at the future, lessons that they learned from the pandemic, good things that came out of a terrible situation and what we can take away from that. Then maybe some bad things that the pandemic woke them up to that they've decided to jettison. So I'm looking forward to sharing these. I don't want to like give away because some of these folks I'm still talking to, but they're going to be cool. They're going to be maybe some schools that you've heard of, some schools that you've never heard of, maybe some schools that you've heard about if you're kind of an education nerd and you listen to other podcasts. Maybe you've heard some interviews with these folks, and I bet you some folks you didn't even know existed, but will be cool nonetheless. We are opening the season with actually an old friend of mine. Christian Dalavis is the assistant superintendent for the partnership schools. And now if partnership schools sound familiar, those of you that are in the sort of deep album cuts of Cool Schools will remember that we interviewed Kathleen Porter McGee a few years ago. She is the overall superintendent of the partnership school. She's based in New York City. And if you remember that story, this wonderful group of people took over a group of Catholic schools, a sort of formerly struggling Catholic schools in New York City, and really turned them around and have invested in the community. And she told us great stories and lessons that she learned. Well, the partnership schools expanded to Cleveland, Ohio, working with two schools there, Archbishop Lyke and St. Thomas Aquinas, and Christian who I know through the Alliance for Catholic Education at Notre Dame, where he was ensconced for, I think, a decade or more, is sort of overseeing the operation there. So we have this wonderful opportunity to talk about what they are doing in Cleveland, to talk about kind of Catholic education in general, to talk about the pandemic and that's impact on Catholic schools, on schools that serve low-income students, have a really a great opportunity to kind of talk with an old friend about the great stuff that he's doing right now. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Christian Dalavis, Assistant Superintendent for the Partnership Schools in Cleveland, Ohio. Well, Christian Dalavis, welcome to the Cool Schools podcast. We had a fellow Partnership Schools person, Kathleen Porter McGee, on here. I think it was in season one. I probably should have checked that before we had our conversation, but talking about the great stuff that's happening in New York City. But you are in Cleveland, Ohio continuing some of the great work that started there. So maybe if you could just give us a little bit of overview about the partnership schools, like how they got started in New York, and then how you made your way to Cleveland. 
Sure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. So the partnership schools have been operating as a school management organization in New York City since 2013. The Archdiocese of New York turned over first six Catholic schools in Harlem and the South Bronx to the partnership in 2013, given the partnership responsibility to operate the schools, take responsibility for the academics, the school leadership, the finances, fundraising. And then two years ago, turned over a seventh school, St. Charles Borromeo in Harlem, to the partnership. And as the partnership has implemented its curriculum program, an extended day, a focus on instructional excellence, providing a ton of professional development to teachers, using our partners, uh, Teach Like a Champion, and a whole suite of back office support around executive management, operational vitality, providing scholarship support to all the students in our schools. We've seen really tremendous academic growth in our students. 17% of our kids were scoring proficient on the New York State test the first year. Partnership took over the most recent state test. That, that was in math. Uh, most recently, it's gone from the 17%, 17% to 52%. And in language arts, it's gone from 22 to 48. So over time, you know, you see those kinds of academic gains, which are kind of unheard of. And you see a lot of other dioceses and schools kind of clamoring for expansion and wanting to see that in their diocese. And the partnership is certainly looking to be part of a national movement to help make the case for this approach to Catholic education and to demonstrate what's possible in other places as well. And after looking at different dioceses for kind of indicators of what we feel like is necessary to make this work, Cleveland really stood out as a place where we felt like we could demonstrate what's possible with the diocese that had schools that had the kinds of needs that we felt like we could fill and a lot of support on the ground. So we started last July taking on two schools in the Diocese of Cleveland and did not anticipate that we would be taking on schools in the middle of a pandemic, but uh, it has worked out pretty well. To, we've gotten off to a good start with really strong enrollment gains and a really strong start to shift the mindset and culture and uh laying the foundation for academic gains. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about those two schools? Like what's their history? Sure. So one is called St. Thomas Aquinas. It was founded in 1899. It's on the east side of Cleveland. It is an all African-American school that almost all of the students receive state scholarships. It's often called the voucher, the Cleveland voucher program. And it was actually the diocese announced in January of 2020 that the school was going to be closed at the end of the year because enrollment had dropped over the previous five years by about 40%. And the diocese had looked at the demographics of the community and felt like the, it wasn't sustainable and for financial reasons and enrollment reasons, weren't able to sustain it. The other is Archbishop Like, which is an interesting case. It's one of these schools that, you know, you see consolidations as a strategy for keeping schools open and trying to continue to serve a community when a, a particular school viability is in question. Archbishop Lake is the product of school consolidation stretching back 50 years, and it is the last school standing of, over time, 10 different schools. So originally three schools closed, consolidated in 1970, and then more schools were kind of added to this cluster over the years. Nine other schools have ultimately closed, and Archbishop Lake is the last one standing after 50 years of consolidations. It, too, had seen a, almost a 50% decline in student enrollment over the last five years. And so we took Archbishop-like on last year. But since then, we've seen enrollment gains of 30% at Archbishop-like and almost 50% at St. Thomas Aquinas. 
So now what is it that you all do? So what makes these schools sort of different for your involvement in them as opposed to what they were doing before? Right. There's a couple of things. One, we focus on creating a strong, intentional, positive Catholic school culture that's rooted in what we believe and ensures that everything we do is a reflection of what we believe. And we started that our first day when we met with the teachers at the beginning of the year last year so that everybody in the building knows from the kindergarten students through the parents and all the teachers that everybody here believes a certain set of things. And the teachers determine these together at the beginning of the year with the principals. And these would include things like We believe that we're better together. We believe that we're made in the image and likeness of God. We believe that we're made for each other. We believe that we can do hard things. We believe that we're made for greatness. And all of the policies, procedures, programs, rituals, routines, decisions that anyone makes in the school are informed by those beliefs and can be traced back to them. So if a student gets in trouble or a student doesn't meet behavior expectations, the way the teacher responds to that is informed by the teacher's belief that that student is made for greatness. So we don't you know, knee-jerk, suspend, or expel a student for an infraction. Whereas in the past, it might have been, you know, you look at the handbook and see, okay, that's worthy of a suspension. Instead, we look at the individual case and we treat every student like they're made for greatness. We believe that, you know, because we are really gospel-driven, we believe that we're, you know, we're prodigal son people. We're, you know, you, you go after the one sheep and bring them back. And so we really believe in opportunities for healing and growth. So we really take that stuff seriously, and our principals have really done a a dynamite job of really building a culture that is focused on those things we believe and helping teachers to, even in the most difficult moments, you and I have both been teachers, and you've been in those moments where kids are just really testing your limits, and to remember in those moments that this child is made for greatness. That can be hard sometimes, and to keep that front of mind takes a real culture shift, and so we're really focused on that. The other kind of more concrete things that we bring to the table are we've implemented a like a content-driven, knowledge-based curriculum across the board. So we've implemented a new language arts and math curriculum. We believe that the thing that drives student results is good teaching and more of it. So we've lengthened the school days. So kids are in school until four o'clock. And that's because we want to ensure that kids get plenty of minutes for strong instruction in math and language arts but that they don't get anything taken away. So we still have full time for PE and music and art and religion. And we have two recesses every day and a lunch period. You know, you can kind of double down on math and language arts. I've seen a lot of schools double down on math and language arts, and they do that by taking away those other courses. But we don't want to do that, so we add time to the day. We also increase our teacher salaries by 15% to compensate them for that work that they're putting in. We invest in the buildings. A lot of Catholic schools, especially in urban areas, have just you know been the subject of decades of deferred maintenance. And we think that our kids need to have top flight facilities. And so last summer in Cleveland, we put a lot into basic things like stripping and waxing floors, painting things, putting in new whiteboards, putting in new projectors and screens. And this summer, we're putting in all new furniture, getting new desks and chairs and lockers and new classroom doors and just real concrete but visible signs of refurbishing and refreshing the facilities. So there's a number of things that go into it, but the curriculum and instruction, we also provide a ton of professional development. So I said good teaching and more of it. We really focus on helping our teachers get better. And we've partnered with Teach Like a Champion since our inception. And and since theirs, we're one of their first partners. 
and they provide ongoing professional development on site and remotely for us, which is just enormously helpful. They're some of the some of the strongest adult learning providers that I've ever encountered. And so now when you get involved with the school, do you work with the existing staff, the existing teachers? Do you hire new teachers? Is it some mix? Yeah, we work with the folks who are there. Our mission is to work with schools that exist and not to start new schools that will run an old school out of business. Or we don't go in and you know have everybody reapply for their jobs or something like that. We believe in the power of existing Catholic parochial schools. And we believe that Catholic schools have been typically our, our anchors in their community or they're kind of I think of them as like just, you know, sources of community capital and social capital in their communities. And so what we do is we work with the teachers who are there and the principals who are there and provide as much support and training as we can to support them and their journey to, to be great educators. A lot of them are super enthusiastic right off the bat to try something new because they know that, you know, there's like at St. Thomas Aquinas last year, they were closed. They were told they were closing. They were told they have to find new jobs. Kids were, they brought in other schools to recruit their kids. And then the diocese, when it became clear that we would be able to work out a deal with the diocese to come in, they decided to keep it open. But, you know, they know that things aren't working out well. And we know that, you know, over the last 20 years, 3,011 Catholic schools have closed in the United States. That's about 35, 40% of all Catholic schools in America, we have to do something differently if we're not going to lose another 3,000 Catholic schools in the next 20 years. And so now what do you, you mentioned you've seen this really strong enrollment growth, but I mean, you haven't been involved that long. So I'm curious, what do you think is driving that enrollment growth? Is it excitement about something new and different? Is it the partnership brand? Because I mean, I don't know if you've had time yet to say, you know, here, look at what this school is doing now. Look at our scores. Look at the increasing, et cetera. Is it, is it the brand? What do you think is driving those enrollment gains? I think it's a couple of things. I think part of it was that we were in school in person from the first day. We had parents calling us, literally had parents calling in the morning saying, hey, I was just driving by on Superior Avenue and I saw kids outside. Are you doing in-person learning? Because I want that for my kid. So that was just awesome. And because there were so many schools that just weren't doing that and parents really wanted their kids in school last fall. And so that was part of it. That wasn't the only part of it. I think there are a lot of parents that really want a faith-based education for their kids. Almost all of our students are not Catholic, but having a faith-based education is really important to their parents. And then I think there was something about the commitment to improving the school. I think parents saw the work trucks doing construction last summer. I think there was something too. I think parents were attracted to the idea of the extended day and the commitment to more learning. I think parents were attracted to the commitment, the idea that when the school was closed, they felt like this is it. And I think prior to that, the sense was always like, okay, the school, you know, maybe we can get one more year, one more year, one more year. But when the diocese and the partnership signed this agreement, it's kind of like, okay, this is here for a while. Like, we're not going anywhere. And that sense of long-term permanence and an upward trajectory, I think the words started to spread in the community. We were getting lots of word-of-mouth referrals from families last late summer, early fall, that I think really drove a lot of it. And I think that was really the driving force. Well, I'm interested. You brought up the pandemic. I mean, it seems like at the outset of the pandemic, folks would look at schools like the two that you're involved with and say, 
this isn't going to work, right? The economic, you know, crash that takes place, people, everybody, you know, huge unemployment spikes, et cetera. It's like these schools are just not going to keep going. And yet the exact opposite happened. It sounds like a large part of that was because you were in person when a lot of schools weren't. So I'm sort of interested, A, what do you think drove that? which was the in-person learning or if other things were going on. But B, I'm actually more kind of interested in just like how you all did it. Like, how did you all manage mm-hmm. the pandemic? How were you able to be open when other people were closed? Yeah, I should mention one other thing. So we also hired an enrollment coordinator. It's one of the first things that we did. So we hired a woman named Portia Gadsden, who was the assistant principal at St. Thomas. Her kids went to St. Thomas. She herself actually went to the school that's now at Archbishop Lake. And she knows the community, she knows the parents, she lives right around the corner from Archbishop Lake. And she really like hit the ground and called parents. And when parents would inquire, she would call them back and they would be enrolled within minutes. And she would have their friends' phone numbers and their cousins' numbers. And so Portia was just like tenacious about recruiting. And she could sell it because she's she's a mom of kids who went there, right? And she went there herself. And So that was, I think, a big part of it is like having someone dedicated to that specifically to recruiting is a big part of it. As far as like, how did we open? We just figured out what we needed to do to open safely. We made the decision early that we were going to open in person as quickly as we could, as soon as it was safe. And That was long before, that was probably in June of last year, before we knew whether we would be able to or not, but we just decided that we were going to do it as soon as it was safe. So we looked into, you know, following all the guidance, but determined, you know, we we built plexiglass barriers between desks and put these desk shields up and committed to wearing masks and, you know, teaching kids and rehearsing with kids how to put masks on before they go in the building and how to wear them and how to, you know, prepare teachers to remind kids frequently and, you know, rehearsed the lines and all the protocols. And we also had to come up with pretty, you know, as everybody did, come up with pretty complex protocols for when somebody got sick or appeared to be sick. That was the most complicated thing is when someone seemed to be sick, but you didn't know if they were, how to make decisions about quarantining. But we wound up over the course of the year, we didn't have any cases of transmission in the schools. We had a few people get sick, but we could trace all of those back to, you know, like a kid's mom who worked in a nursing home or something like that. But nobody passed the virus in any of our, in our schools. So with the protocols and the procedures all seemed to work and kept everybody safe. Wow. Now, you mentioned, you know, folks would be driving down the street and people were so interested in this in-person learning. Did that change the student population? It grew it enormously. And yeah, it did. So, you know, at St. Thomas, they went from 175 kids to 258. And so we did have, you know, a huge influx of students who had never been in a Catholic school before. And we had a first year principal who really had to work hard at ensuring that the new students were oriented to the St. Thomas school culture especially because a lot of them started after the first day of school, too. So the teachers had a lot of first days of school over the course of like September and October. But yeah, so we had a lot of kids who came in who, you know, were coming from a completely different kind of school culture where they had different sets of expectations. So it was a challenge for teachers at times to really help kids to have a sense of what the expectations would be at St. Thomas. And 
they were also doing that while balancing. You know, kids had the option to learn from home. So we had a, a certain percentage of kids learning remotely. So teachers were splitting their time between at-home learners and in-school learners. So it was a real challenging year for our teachers, but I'd say largely very successful. All of those students are returning this year, about the same retention percentage as we usually get, about 85%. So we're pretty happy about that. Sure. Now, you talked about making a lot of investments in the school buildings, paying teachers Mm -hmm. more, longer day. How does this work? How does the money work here? So we have a pretty substantial fundraising operation. I shouldn't say operation, but we engage in some fundraising and we have some really generous supporters in Cleveland. And we're really working hard to generate resources there. You know, the kind of baseline education is largely supported by the state scholarship program, which we're really grateful. The governor just signed a bill that increases the amount each student gets from $4,650 to $5,500, which is helpful, really helpful. But we do have to raise a substantial portion to cover the full cost to educate. We're planning to increase our impact in Cleveland and grow to a couple of more schools. Our initial arrangement with then Bishop Perez, who has moved to Philadelphia, now the Archbishop of Philadelphia, and now Bishop Molesic is to serve in six schools, which we plan to be in over the next couple of years. And as we grow and realize some economies of scale, our cost to educate will obviously go down and uh, get closer to closer to the amount that we get from the state, but we'll still, we'll always have some fundraising to do. Yeah. And you mentioned school choice policies. And so I'm, you know, legally obligated as working for EdChoice that we have to talk about on that. I'd be interested from your sort of practitioner perspective as someone who is involved in schools that participate in these. What is that like? Is the state easy to deal with when it comes to those funds? Is there administrative bureaucracy? Are there parts that obviously the funds are helpful? But I would just be interested in sort of your experience with these programs. Yeah, so we have students on four different kinds of state scholarships, the Cleveland Scholarship, the Ed Choice, Ed Choice Expansion, and John Peterson Scholarships for students with learning needs. They are relatively straightforward in kind of managing the scholarship process. It is a, I mean, there is bureaucracy involved with it. And so we are getting better after a year of navigating it at figuring out how to navigate that bureaucracy and all the various online portals. And there is a lot of paperwork that parents have to produce. But again, this is where Portia has been very helpful in figuring out how to like streamline a lot of that, get it all, get a lot of it online and into a kind of streamlined system to ensure that we can get a parent like their scholarship application kind of materials captured as quickly and smoothly as possible. Because it can be kind of an onerous process, all the things that parents have to pull together to get their scholarship application up to the state and then approved. There are a number of hoops that have to be jumped through, but it's well worth it for the benefit. After having worked in states where there is no um, parental choice, it's definitely well worth it. it. It could be simpler, but it's a great benefit. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because I was going to ask, you know, people who listen to this podcast, there are some policymakers, there are advocates. So from a school operator's perspective, if you could talk to folks, you're giving them advice of elements of programs that are helpful or some that are more, I don't want to say harmful, but maybe just like more onerous or make your life more difficult without actually, you know, 
making it not ensuring that, you know, dollars are better spent or whatever. Is there any advice that you would give to those folks to say, hey, this is something good to include or this is something that's probably not necessary? I'm not sure how I'd answer that with this program. So I've worked in, I used to direct the Notre Dame Ace Academies at Notre Dame, where I worked in Arizona and Florida and Indiana. And by comparison, and now I've worked with schools in New York as well, where there's no choice. The principals in New York are super jealous of the principals in Cleveland because it's all just, it's private scholarship funding there. Having a voucher over a tax credit from the principal's perspective and school operator's perspective in some ways is much easier. Not having to raise tax credit scholarship dollars is nice. We used to have to raise a lot of the tax credit scholarship dollars. And the eligibility for these scholarships is nice and simple. When I was working in Arizona, I remember I showed Matt Ladner this flow chart that I had to create with um, our scholarship coordinator where it was kind of like you qualify for this tax credit scholarship if you are, you know, a foster child or the child of active duty military or living on a Native American reservation or and then there's another one if you are switching from a public school or another one if you're transferring in from out of state. Like it was so complicated that so many schools just like didn't even bother trying to move families through the process because they couldn't figure out how to navigate it. Whereas this is just nice and easy. Like you, you qualify for the Cleveland scholarship if you live in the city of Cleveland, everybody qualifies. Ed choice is a little more complicated, like you're, you have to be zoned for a DRF school or fall below a certain income threshold, but the state has basically like a, you put in your zip code and it tells you if you qualify. So the only downside of the Ohio ecosystem is the amount of the voucher, which is at 46.50 was not anywhere near what it takes to, to educate a student. 5,500 is a little better, but it's still not what it takes to educate a student. No, that's all That's all super helpful. So as we're kind of bringing this into a close, a question I like to ask, and, and you have a lot of experience in a, a lot of different types of schools, but maybe just in this particular sort of path that you're on right now, one of the things, because some people who listen to this podcast or other school operators, or they're people who are thinking about starting a school, or they're, they're obviously drawn to innovation in education, you have now been working on this and and the pandemic happens. And so, you know, some idiosyncratic, hopefully idiosyncratic things that won't be repeated again. But if you could go back as you were getting started in this and give yourself advice, like things that you know now that you wish you had known then, what advice would you give yourself? I wish we could have found a way to get more of a sense of how things were going in classrooms and in the school despite the pandemic, because we really feel like we lost, I know everybody's talking about like learning loss, and but we really feel like we, we did all this training with the teachers all via Zoom, and then we started the year, and we were kind of keeping up with, and the principals were our eyes and ears, right? But we really got to end up them via Zoom too. And then once I started going in person, it really got a sense of like where things were. And I guess I wish we had found ways to like try to get a better sense of how things are going in those first six months or so and try to find a way to be more, phys- not even physically present, but just to maybe even like get to know the teachers personally, like one-on-one, despite the constraints of not being able to be physically present. You know, we put like, I think everybody did 
pretty strict restrictions on the guests in the building because that was important to parents. Perfectly that, reasonable. Sure. You know, but we included ourselves in that and we didn't want to be vectors of, a, of the virus. And my state was one that in Indiana was at a very high, <laughs> we, were, we were very high incidence of COVID and we weren't allowed to travel into Ohio for a while. But yeah, so that's one thing that is, I feel like we've got a lot of ground to make up in terms of like really building relationships, but also like doing like teacher development. I feel like we didn't have a full year one. We had kind of a year 0.5 and we had it with like almost, you know, 50% more students than we, you know, that were just kind of dropped into the building at the last minute. So I think things went well, but I when I think about like, okay, well, what could have gone better? And that's not to say that like the school needed like me on the ground to do sure. to go better. But I think that for us, like as a partnership team, and, and that's also to say like the partnership team is is largely in New York. And so they weren't able to come to Ohio at all this year. So I think that that's one thing that where the, the pandemic really constrained us in a significant way and that we really hope to bounce back from this year. Sure. Look, I, I know that we at EdChoice, and I know just me personally in the various things that I did during the pandemic. Yeah. Anything that required building community was very, very difficult virtually. Like if it was something where you just had to deliver content. So like I had a book come out, so I gave book talks. That's fine over Zoom, right? Because I'm just talking. People can type in their questions and it's fine. But if you wanted to do, you know, I do some teaching and, and, and various things, you know, if it's going to be a multi-day thing where you want to build up some com camaraderie and be able to have a, a, you know, kind of great environment where people can ask questions, that's super hard to do virtually. So that doesn't, I mean, that that strikes a chord with me of exactly what you're trying to do. And so I can't imagine trying to sort of inculcate those values, that culture into a whole new group of students and having to do that virtually. So look, I'm glad you all were able to be in person. Let's hope that you're able to stay that way and you can continue building this culture. I know we'll be watching all of your progress and, and hope to see you spread to, to more schools and to keep the momentum going. So Christian Dalavis, thank you so much for joining the Cool Schools podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be cool with you. Well, that was a great conversation. I hope you all enjoyed that. We spent a lot of time kind of, you, you all aren't able to see the video, but we were, were, were smiling and laughing with one another while that was going on. I think the lessons that they've learned in Cleveland and particularly some of these things that I think is a theme that we're going to see across a lot of different schools that we talk about where, especially private schools, private schools serving low-income students, there was that real thought at the outset that the pandemic was going to be the final nail in the coffin, that so many of these schools had survived through challenging circumstances before, but this was just like a cataclysmic event that they weren't going to be able to get through. And the opposite was true. It shows you, you know, trying to predict the future, the folly that that is. So as I said, I really enjoyed that. I hope folks that are interested in Catholic education, religious education, urban education, across a, a lot of different areas found that conversation useful. As I said at the beginning, this is just the first of several episodes that we're going to be doing this season. They're probably going to be coming out every couple of weeks. As I said, I'm excited about the folks that I'm talking to. I think you will be too. So if you don't already, and I don't know if you're listening to this podcast, how this could possibly be true, but if you are not already subscribed to EdChoice Chats, where you get not only this podcast, you get our monthly tracker podcast, you get our roundups of the goings on in 
states. You hear my colleague, Jason Bedrick, who just like interviews interesting people in education. And I love the podcast that he does. I think calls them big ideas and they're all great. He is able to get these interesting people. They talk for like, if they've written a book, anyway, it's a great podcast. You can listen to it too. And the beauty is if you just subscribe to this podcast, you can get access to all of those. Be sure to check out our website, www.edchoice.org. We've recently redone the website, so it's super user-friendly. You can see all the cool research stuff that we do. You can see um, just all of the great stuff that that EdChoice is doing. Follow me on social media. I'm at Twitter, MQ underscore McShane. If you know of cool schools or any other topics related to school choice or education, please feel free to hit me up. As always, I appreciate the time that we get to spend together, and I look forward to talking to you not only at another episode of EdChoice Chats, but particularly another episode of Cool Schools. Take care, everybody. 